0: Hello, and welcome to the fifth episode of Sanity Optional. My name is Silent Snooper. I recently bought a new mic, I hope you can tell, and I hope that the difference is noticeable and positive. Please let me know. I would like to start off with a disclaimer. I do not claim to understand what it is like to live with a disability or impairment. This episode is not intended to insult or offend anyone. It is meant as a talk with the intent for education and awareness. Now. On to the main topic. With almost 8 billion people in the world, approximately 2.5 billion play video games of some sort, be they console, PC, or mobile. That is around 31% of the population. Approximately 20% of those gamers, which is around 500 million people, are disabled in some way, and many companies and charities are working to increase video game accessibility. These companies, charities, and even websites are available to help transition disabled gamers into being able to play video games. Some of the charities, for instance, will modify a controller to specific needs of specific people. For example, modifying a controller into being able to be manipulated with one hand. There are sites that review video games from the point of view of someone with a disability. Some provide lists of games that are accessible based on the disability and some are forums and communities where people can converse about all of these topics and more. If you're interested further, a Google search will reveal myriad results. But what is video game accessibility? Ideally, I think video game accessibility is trying to design a game where anyone and everyone has the ability to play the game. Now, that isn't realistic, So let's change it to Designing a video game with disabilities in mind when inventing game systems, mechanics, and interfaces and making as reasonable accommodations as possible across as wide a net of disabilities as possible. But that is easier said than done. Do all games need to be accessible to everyone? No, I think that's unrealistic. Does making your game more accessible dumb down your game? If done correctly, I don't think so. I do think that companies should, at minimum, provide accessibility to the most common disabilities. Having your game able to be played by as many people as possible makes sense in many ways. It can increase your customer base for your company and game franchises, which increases profits, etc. But it can also increase company or brand reputation. And if you can develop an innovative way that accommodates for a ton of varying disabilities and implement those accommodations into an interesting fun, and involving video game series, then that might corner a market. I would imagine that if a company did such a thing, then they would garner a large influx of not only disabled gamers, but regular gamers as well. But I could be wrong. One controversial topic among some gamers is should Souls-like games, which are notoriously difficult, have an easy mode for those who just want to experience the story? Personally, I don't play Souls-like games and my view on that question used to be indifference. But after thinking about it, I've come to the conclusion that if the vision you have for the game you're making allows for a story mode, then why not? You're likely to reach a wider audience and make a little more money. But if your vision is steadfast in what you want to make and doesn't allow for these concessions, then you shouldn't be forced or obligated to do it. After all, it's your game. If the game is single player, then I think that every possible accessibility option should be available, or at minimum, discussed or able to be modded in, because why not? Why wouldn't you want that? If it's a multiplayer game, then as many accessibility options as possible should be available, but there should be a line somewhere. Is the line when a game becomes competitive? Should there be separate leaderboards? Does there need to be a leaderboard for each disability? I think that accessibility features should be something that doesn't give gamers with disabilities an edge over normal players. I think the goal should be that they instead bring the disabled player in line with the average player. Aim Assist is freely available as a setting in many games, and it is available by default with no third-party software required. I could easily see something like Aim Assist being used by normal players as an advantage over other normal players. Is that cheating? Is it optimizing your game experience? Is opting not to use it consciously choosing to degrade your chances of success? Is choosing not to use it an unspoken rule of fairness amongst normal players because it makes you more dependent on skill? What do you think? I think video games are a form of art, and I don't think that someone should have creative control over the artist unless they are contracting the artist for a specific piece of art for themselves. Plus, if the gamer really wants to experience the story or the world of a game, then it might push them to reach out and try something new, which might turn into them making themselves a better player, which might end up with them enjoying the game as it was intended. Now, it's extremely difficult to cater to every disability. There's a ton of them. Expecting everything to be solved or solvable is unrealistic. Some video game companies... Hire accessibility consultants to help make their game more accessible. These are the four areas for the most common physical accessibility disabilities. Fine motor skills, auditory, vision, and color blindness. And we'll cover each of these and see what video game companies can do about them. Let's talk about fine motor skills. Some things that seem simple for normal people, like button mashing sequences, can be very difficult or painful for those with joint pain or motor skill impairments. You shouldn't have to literally hurt yourself to play a video game. Some games have an option where instead of smashing the button repeatedly, you just have to hold down that button, and I think that's a fair compromise. In 2018, Microsoft released the Xbox Adaptive Controller, which featured fully customizable buttons along with varying Switch sensitivity. An ad for the device aired during Super Bowl 33, in which a group of disabled children successfully played Xbox games using the controller. Around 100 million people watched that Super Bowl, and around 30 million watched the video on YouTube. Thus, the controller became popular. The Xbox Adaptive Controller released at $99, but the controller only services a portion of the disabled community. Also, if Sony released a version of that controller for the PlayStation, Would those people also have to buy the device too if they had both an Xbox and a PlayStation? Doesn't that increase the barrier to entry financially? Well, yes, it definitely does. Especially if you have to buy a $500 console and a $100 controller separately. So, because you're disabled, you have to pay more money for the privilege of playing video games? Not to harp on Microsoft here, but couldn't they have an option where you can trade in the default controllers that come with the console for the adaptive one? That would lower the barrier to entry to the same as everyone else, wouldn't it? What about those with auditory issues? Sound in video games can arguably be more important than the graphics of the game. This depends on the game. The soundscape can immerse the player in the world in a way that almost no other sense can. Sound can provide cohesion to the world, inform situational awareness, give clues to puzzles or secrets in the environment, stir up emotions within the player, and be an integral part of the experience. Auditory processing disorder is where your ears and your brain aren't in synchronization, which leads to difficulty hearing words and difficulty differentiating like-sounding words. Video game developers can use some methods to counter this, using visual cues instead of audio cues, making like-sounding things be more distinct or unique, or being able to turn on subtitles. What about visual impairments? In 2017, it was estimated that 5 to 10% of the population suffers from some degree of dyslexia. For simplicity's sake, let's say 10%. That's almost 800 million people worldwide. And of that 800 million who have dyslexia, and using figures from earlier, about 160 million of them play video games. That is a large audience potential. What can a video game company do to perhaps attract more of that market? Well, That got me thinking. How would I combat dyslexia if I was making a game? Well, how about a font? Is there a font for dyslexics? Yes, there is actually. There is a dyslexia-friendly font called open dyslexic in which the bottoms and sometimes sides of certain letters have thicker lines. This kind of gives them a visual weight and makes each letter more discernibly unique. Another font, dyslexy, prevents letters from being mirrored or turned upside down or swapped because each letter has a center of gravity. Some letters have shorter heights than normal letters like lowercase f, h, and the tail on the p, and certain swappable letters are slanted differently. For example, the upper part of the circle in the lowercase b is slanted towards 11 o'clock, while the lower part of the circle on the lowercase d is slanted towards 11 o'clock. So the b has a wider base and the d has a narrower base. This makes them more distinct and lessens the chances of the brain swapping them. Also, Kappa letters and punctuation marks are in bold for emphasis. The letters are spaced a little further apart because letters that are smashed together can be more difficult to read. I sometimes have this problem. If a word has a lot of lowercase I's, L's, F's, or T's, for example, they can blend a bit, which slows down reading. For a game with a lot of reading in it, using this font would be a simple assist, if not fix, for those with dyslexia. Finally, colorblindness. 8% of all men are colorblind in some form. Males are much more likely to be colorblind than females because the genes for colorblindness, which are recessive genes, occur in the X chromosome, and since males have only one X chromosome, it's more likely to be passed down genetically. Since females have two X chromosomes, a faulty gene in one can be compensated for if the other X chromosome lacks that fault. For women, only about half of a percent of the population is colorblind. Many games have a colorblind mode and options with it to correct color perception for that game. What about gamers with disabilities who play competitive games? Do the accessibility options for disabilities give an edge over a normal player? Are the accommodations enough to bring the disabled player in line with a normal player? Should disabled players only be allowed to compete with other disabled players? Does using accommodations qualify or disqualify someone from professionally participating? I don't know, I'm not an expert and I don't make those choices, but I'd be interested to hear what you think. What about other things that may or may not be disabilities? There is a whole generation of gamers who are surpassing certain age breakpoints, not to mention already older adults who are taking a foray into video games. The older a person gets, the worse their reaction times become, and it can take a little longer to make split second decisions. Is this slower response time considered a disability for competitive games? It affects your ability to play the game as effectively as others. Could it be considered a disability when you're matched with those much younger than the older player? Say there's a dad who's 50 years old and plays competitive games with his kids who are say 15 or 17 years old. Does his slower response times become a disability while on his kids' team? Does he bring their performance down? Some people might say yes. Some people might say no. What do you think? What about esports? When people think of sports, they generally think of young athletes who compete with other young athletes, and those sports frequently have a cutoff for player age, where typically performance drops below a requirement. The minimum to maximum age range for esports seems to be from 13 to 30 years old, with peak performance being between 18 and 22, or thereabouts. Do we solve this problem by simply creating a middle-aged league and a senior league so that similar-age players are matched only with other similar-age players? Does that solve the problem? What about younger folks attempting to infiltrate the older leagues simply because they can outperform and feel powerful? When a player graduates from one league to another, how does that work? How would that be enforced? What are the thresholds? Would people want this? Would people watch this? I don't know. I might watch it for a time. It might be fun watching older folks play like Starcraft 2 or Call of Duty and call each other out with old people chatter. Ha! I got you, you bed-swerving camper. Stop being a scobberlatcher and help our team. We need to kick this wiffle-waffling rakefire off our team. He's about as useful as a screen door on a submarine. Would things like aim assist or larger icons help with compensating for ailing reflexes? Is that something people would want? I don't know. Please let me know what you think. There are a small number of guilds in World of Warcraft where people with disabilities come together to overcome the game's challenges. Some may be deaf or mute, others may be blind and have a visual helper from a friend or family member sitting next to them. A lot of these guilds have to communicate in the only way they can, with in-game chat, which can be cumbersome for those without disabilities. What with things like lag, reading time, and reaction time to account for, Raid callouts for cooldowns or mechanics have to be timed perfectly, and that can be challenging enough to handle when hurting normal raiders who have add-ons like deadly boss mods or whatnot. And many of these guilds are successful. Recently, a raid of players with disabilities killed the final boss of the most current raid, Castle Nathria, on the heroic or second most difficult setting, and that boss is overtuned for most normal guilds out there. So a massive kudos to them. Now, on to the word of the week. This week's word is fellow feel. It's from the 17th century and it means to share in the feelings of others, to empathize, to have compassion. Fellow feel. And now, science. This science segment is going to be about your eyes and colorblindness and uh, a couple of the technologies. The retina in your eye is full of structures called rods and cones. The 100 million rods in your eye detect light in low light situations, whereas the 6 to 7 million cones detect light in bright situations, but they also detect color. Most of the cones are located in the macula, which is the central area of your retina. The highest concentration of cones are located in the fovea which is in the center of the macula and is about 0.3 millimeters wide. As stated earlier, color blindness mostly comes from genes in the X chromosome. The genes are known as OPN1LW, OPN1MW, and OPN1SW, or opn one wave, medium wave, and short wave, respectively. So the OPN1 genes Tell the body how to make three types of cones for your retina L cones, M cones, and S cones. Damn, now I want scones. Anyway, each cone consists of photopigments, which are called opsin, which is made of proteins. LPN1 long wave makes an opsin that is better at detecting red wavelengths, which are longer wavelengths. OPN1 medium wave makes an opsin that is better at detecting green wavelengths, which are a medium wavelength. Concordantly, the OPN1 shortwave gene makes an opsin that is better at detecting blue wavelengths, which are a short wavelength. Mutations in the OPN1LW and OPN1MW genes are the causes of red-green colorblindness. This is because there are less red-detecting and green-detecting cones. Mutations in the OPN1SW gene cause blue-yellow color blindness. This color blindness affects around 1 in 10,000 people, but men and women are affected equally. Color blindness can also be caused by Parkinson's disease, cataracts, some medications, and damage in the area of your brain that processes images. Now there's this cool thing that's called EnChroma, which are glasses that attempt to be color correcting. They're supposed to work well versus red-green color blindness by increasing the perception of brilliant and vibrant colors. Now, there are reviews where people say that there was a dramatic difference, and there are reviews where people say there was a mild to moderate difference. But keep in mind that everyone's eyes are different and that these aren't guaranteed to work. But it's a cool option to explore that didn't exist a decade ago. Another cool technology that's not related to color blindness but is related to your eyes is eye tracking software. There are a lot of eye tracking programs out there, but probably the best known company is Tobii. How does eye tracking work? Eye tracking works with special cameras, sensors, and projectors. The projectors apply near-infrared dots of light onto your eyes. The camera views your eyes and watches them move while also being able to see the near-infrared dots. Then, AI, image processing, and some mathematical methods are all used to communicate and figure out where your eye is looking on the screen. Then it communicates with computer and interacts with programs, allowing you to do things with your eyes, like selecting from a menu or moving around and interacting with the game environment. Now, eye tracking technology is typically used in scientific, marketing, and end user research. So you can figure out where people's eyes are drawn to in an advertisement or on a product and then you can put the important information there instead of hidden somewhere in a random corner. Or you can alter the advertisement, for example, and integrate things that draw people's attention. So from the spot where a majority of people look, you can have an interesting design or series of colors that guide their vision to a specific area of the advertisement. In this way, you may be able to convey more information or pique their interest. One interesting idea with eye tracking, that If you had a video game that was as socially interactive as the gameplay of Detroit Become Human, but the characters were able to respond to where you were looking and know whether or not you were making eye contact or whatever, that could be really interesting and more engaging. Or if you had a horror game that had things happen when you actually look at them. Maybe you look at a vase and it flies off the shelf shattering against the opposite wall, or you see a reflection on a window or mirror and the glass shatters or candles and fireplaces flicker or snuff out entirely when you look at them. That could be an interesting level of interaction and environmental suspense building, and it would be cool if someone would make such a game. Well, that's it for this week's Sanity Optional. Thank you for listening. Please let me know how the new mic worked out, I, and I'd love to hear your opinions and thoughts on the topics covered in this and previous episodes. You can leave feedback at sanityoptionalpodcast@gmail.com. at or R slash sanity optional. I hope you have a great week and stay sane if you want, it's optional.